One thing that we say is that when we take up repair, we're really prompting a conversation into the ethics and the practice of care of things, sure, but also with each other, our environment, and our communities. Repairing is caring. It's an inescapable fact. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering, and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. Repair Cafe organisers John Wackman and Elizabeth Knight have been champions of repair for years, and they're both leaders in their local communities. This month, I connected with them over the internet to talk about their new book, Repair Revolution, How Fixers Are Transforming Our Throwaway Culture, which explores the repair movement and the communities that have sprung up around it, both in the US and in the rest of the world. My name is John Wackman, and I like to say that I am the coordinator, communicator, and cheerleader for Repair Cafes in the Hudson Valley. So I was the first to bring Repair Cafes to this region, and we'll tell the story of how a book eventually came out of this as well. And I'm Elizabeth Knight. I would say the Repair Revolution is about the philosophy and the history and the importance of repair, not just in the U.S., but internationally. And it also provides practical how-to inspiration and tips that you could start, whether it's a pop-up or a full-blown repair cafe or a fix-it clinic, right where you are. Great. And how did you come to kind of get interested yourself, Elizabeth, in, in repair? Well, what happened was I had moved to Warwick, New York, and I was appalled the first time I saw the spring trash pickup. And when I saw how much stuff was kicked to the curb and the quality of this stuff, I mean, at the time I was teaching English as a second language and a lot of my students couldn't afford books. So I was going around the sidewalk, scraping up the books to give away. And then I called the Department of Public Works in the village and said, how much stuff do you pick up? Where does it go? And what does it cost to get it there? And when I saw the answers to that, I thought there's really got to be a better way. So I looked into, well, what do we need to do to start a materials exchange? And in that process, I found out that our county had not had a recycling coordinator for nearly 16 years. And my husband and I got involved and spent two years pressuring the county to hire someone, which they finally did. And I was working with a group of makers and artists who were interested in reusing and repurposing discarded items to make art. They wanted to hold classes. We thought, okay, let's look for a a local space and we can hold a repair cafe type of event there. Well, that turned out to be totally unaffordable and we had no municipal support. I had read about a repair cafe in a local green living magazine and I thought, that's a really interesting thing. I took a lamp and I was just so impressed about the care and the communication and the skills for the people who came together. And I came home and I thought, okay, I can't do a materials exchange, but maybe I can do a repair cafe to find out if anybody else in town thinks this is a good idea. You know, so that's this is how the, I got started. Yeah, this is the question they, that everybody asks, Dave. And, and when they come to a repair cafe, as Elizabeth did, is, wow, this is so cool. How do I get one of these in my town? Exactly. 
How did you kind of come together to write a book on the subject of repair? Like, how did that come about? My skill set is woodworking. So when I go to other repair cafes, which are, you know, at this point all around the region, as you may know, we have 36, 38 up and down the Hudson River Valley. So when I visit others, uh, and I like to do that as often as possible, I bring my tools. So I was in Beacon, New York, doing wood repairs, and a woman came up to me and sat down. She says, uh, they tell me you're the guy I should talk to. I've been here for a while. I brought some things to be repaired. I think this is great. I think there's a book in this. Turns out she's a literary agent, and so she <laughs> she actually knows her business. You know, the important thing to say is that the book encompasses a very large range of subjects. As you know, repair is about much more than simply fixing stuff. It is about our relationships. It is about our communities. It is about our planet. The impulse to repair is present in every part of our lives. I was so appreciative of the fact that there would be no repair cafe without the volunteers. And I thought the people who are on the sewing team are across the room from the people who are sharpening knives and the bike guys and the small electrics. They don't get to see anything beyond what's in front of them. So I would write up this little, this is how many people who came. They came from 13 to 19 towns. This is what they brought. So I would write up what had come in, what was wrong with it, what we could fix. And then there would always be some story that you could put your head down on the table and sob or laugh to you snort your teeth. So I would write that stuff up. And because John was the coordinator of the whole Hudson Valley, and he had been instrumental in telling me, you think you're going to save things out of the landfill, but what you don't yet know is you're going to make community. And I saw that happen the first time I did it. So yeah. I would just send him these reports. And then he contacted me and said, you know, I've been given an offer to write a book. And I want you to tell the kind of stories that you did in the reports you sent out. Well, you know, Elizabeth, you capture so well, you know, the spirit and the essence of community repair. And so I just realized that the stories you were telling were exactly what the book needed. So please, I said, would you co-author this book? It's evocative to think about the community that comes from repair events at this moment in time when we we can't get out to our communities and and connect with people it's it's very moving to think of those 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 kind of events i mean i've been to similar ones in london and and i've seen that community form and i've i've heard those stories and even seen how some of the data can get used we wanted this book to include as many voices and experiences of the people who do the repair all across the country, quite a lot in Canada as well. We wanted this to be not so much our book as authors, but everybody's book who is involved in this movement. That's a wonderful kind of brief to set yourselves and to include people's voices. And I guess the work that Elizabeth had done of gathering that data as well would be the first step towards that. Part of that came from my marketing background. And a big thank you to my husband, Roger, who's far more IT savvy than I. And he had helped me broadcast all of that. And I was astonished. I had asked the organizers to also share the volunteer questionnaire with their volunteers because I didn't want it to be just how do you make the door open, but I wanted to hear their stories. Did they grow up knowing how to repair things? Were they still active or were they retired? What skills did they bring to this? And I asked them to tell me their story. And I got a three binder full of answers, more than a hundred answers. And as John says, even organizers in Canada contributed to here's how you actually set 
up. I did it when I started my own. I did it the hard way, the wrong way. I thought, well, I've had plenty of experience running special events for department store chains. I know how to do this. I didn't. There's a much easier way. And that that information we got from all of the people who contributed to it. So the things that I thought were obvious were not. And other people had really practical suggestions that resonated across the country. Yeah, you know, we have no doubt everyone involved with the Restart Project has the same feeling that this is just a fantastic community of people who share these bedrock values about why things matter in our lives and, uh, you know, why it's important to extend the useful life of things that we own. At Restart Parties, we largely deal with electronics, although we did recently add unpowered items onto our fixometer, so we're sort of branching out a bit. Like, as much of our motivation is all focused on reducing e-waste, whereas it seems that a lot of what you've done or what you've witnessed has been about kind of items like jewellery or clocks or clothes, etc. Are the reasons why people want to repair those kind of items different from the reasons that they repair? their electronics? That's an interesting question. I would say that and what we focus on and what we invite people to do is bring beloved but broken items to be repaired, you know, and to extend the useful life of things that they own. We absolutely do repair electronics and digital items. That's a very important part of what we do. But I would also say that Elizabeth and I are pretty sure that we don't have right now within our network the same level or caliber of digital repair that is typical at restart parties. You know, where that comes in, we are in touch with high schools, for example. High school students in the U.S. very often need to get community service credits. So these kids will come to the repair cafe, and before you know it, they're sitting down at the digital table, and they're listening in, and they're watching, and then next time around, they come and they sit on the other side of the table, repairing things for other people. Also, we have technical schools here, you know, that very often partner with repair cafes. And I don't want to overstate, we wish there were more of that going on, but um, it's definitely an aspect of it. However, the breadth of items that we accept at repair cafes and that we invite people to bring is pretty much as broad as it can be. For example, toys, dolls, and stuffed animals is another very important category. Mm -hmm. And so you see those kids, you know, hunkering down and seeing how, you know, their toy helicopter gets fixed. And a lot of those items are electronic with microchips in them as well. So, you know, it really is very broad. I would say that one of the real popular repair categories for us is textiles and clothing. This is a combination of sewing machine and hand sewing. It is something that fills the room with, you know, I guess I would say gender equality. And uh, there's also this phenomenon, visible mending. Visible mending is very simply mending that is made and meant to be noticed. You know, a garment that you have worn and loved to death. So here it is. It's got a tear. It's got a fray. It's missing a button. But if it needs needlework, you know, if there's a gap that needs to be filled, well, you are going to mend that in a way that is a personal creative expression. The other thing that we see in the U.S., the most popular item to walk through the door to be fixed is lamps, wonky lamps. Hands down. We also do a lot of knife and scissor and hand tool sharpening, Mm -hmm. bike repair. Bicycle repair is huge. There's really only one category of repairs that most of our events 
don't cover, and that is gasoline engines. And that is because they're, you know, simply to say they're they're kind of noisy and dirty. Nonetheless, they're not prohibited. I think, Elizabeth, in Warwick, you do gasoline engines, don't you? We did at first, but we had someone come through the door who said, you know, I work for the volunteer fire department, and I wouldn't recommend this. So we pulled the plug on that. And along with the woman who said to me, you need to remember where you are with the repairs you offer. And I said, what is it that you think we're missing? She said, I think you should do horseshoeing in the middle of the senior center. And she said, yeah, I said, I don't really think the insurance is going to permit that. And she said, how about dog fur clipping? And I said, well, I think we've got a full requisite of things that one might need to make their life work, but there is a vet down the street. Yeah. Say, so Dave, one thing that you had mentioned earlier is is just the, the emotional quality of how people are attached to the items they bring. And we have one category of repair that may surprise your listeners, and that is photo restoration. So Don Grice, who was a IBM engineer for many years, he has all the software and the equipment to take the faded or damaged photograph that you bring, and he will restore it and print you out a new copy of it. And I will tell you the memories that people are able to retrieve when they see their photograph restored to pretty much its original state is really remarkable. Elizabeth had mentioned there are laughter and tears that we find experience so often in repair events and and that's a good example we always say that people are always happy if you can repair their things but even if they can't they say that they've had a good time one of the stories that i really love there was a woman named uh, heidi spinelli in massachusetts she was repairing a set of ceramic plates that the woman brought in and the woman had gotten them on her mexican honeymoon they hung on the wall in the house until her little boy had knocked them over and smashed all of them and nobody knew how to put them together so the plates were put aside in a box now that boy was a man getting to be married and the mother wanted to give him the plates as a wedding gift so heidi was able to sit with the woman and glue the plates but she says sometimes even if the glue doesn't hold, the best repair is just listening to the story the person tells you about what it means to them. Yeah, like you say, there's a healing, there's a repair that's happening to people just by going through their memories of these objects. The things that we hold in our hands are so much more tied up with who we are quite often than we realize. When we fix our things, in some ways we fix ourselves, don't we? It's kind of beautiful that way. One of my repair coaches ran his own bike repair shop for 49 years in New York City. And he likes to show the kids how do you handle a wrench? How do you use the gear? How do you fill up the tire? And one of the things that's interesting about the bicycle repair stories is we talk about in the book about it isn't over when the repair cafe is over. One of the guys who volunteers, Rich White, Rich is involved in our area. He'd been fixing bikes and he'd been collecting them from the sidewalks, people whose kids had outgrown them people who they were moving and couldn't take the bike with them. And he had been looking for other people who needed bikes. One of the things that makes the Repair Cafe so strong is the community bond. And I knew because of some of the English as a second language training that I was doing, that there was a group that was a resource for a lot of the people from Latin America who are the workers on the farms here. I live in a semi-rural area that's famous for its agriculture and orchards. Many of those people had no transportation from where they lived to the farms. Many of them walked miles to get to work each day. So I called one of the the women who ran the organization and said, you know, we've got all these extra bikes. Can you use them? So now there's a direct link between the bikes we collect and repair 
to that. And it's also part of we do an annual Too Good to Toss community swap. The repair guys come to the swap and they check out the bikes to make sure they're roadworthy before we put them out to give away. And we gave away, I think it was almost 30 bikes last year. So there's an interconnectedness that started with the repair cafe, but the ripples go out to the larger community. Yeah. Here's one uh, quote, Dave, that I just love, and it's, it's from a Methodist pastor in my town. She says, this is more than just an opportunity to fix broken things. It's also an opportunity to fix broken systems and relationships. The Repair Cafe is organized around the ethos of skill sharing, and that is a mutually beneficial and empowering thing. It creates opportunities to nurture neighborly networks and it calls on the invaluable wealth of community knowledge and know-how. We love this. It's asking a community to look within, say, who's got these skills and who's willing to step forward and share them with their neighbors. It's fantastic you know you know that yeah i mean it's, it's a beautiful quote and it very much corresponds with the repair movement that i've met i've heard these kind of stories coming out from everywhere which is which is really beautiful and moving and important i mean and exactly the kind of communities and the kind of future and world i want to live in but we have to make that happen i guess if, if we want to if we want to end up there are there any sort of funny or unexpected things that you've seen on your travels around the repair movement? Funny, I've got moving stories, but I don't think anything... Moving is absolutely fine. I like moving more. All right. <laughs> One of our repair cafes was a pop-up repair cafe during a maker's market Christmas fair. We had a woman who was doing jewelry repairs and her husband was doing lamp and small electrics. We had to clear the space because a band was coming in for a private party. And as the jewelry repair person had packed up her tools and taken them out to the car, a woman who didn't look like she took very good care of herself came through the door and she was holding a broken silver chain in her hand. And uh, she said, I've been driving around for an hour. The GPS couldn't find it. And she said, I need to get this repaired today. And I said, well, I'm sorry, we've got to be out of here in 10 minutes, but there's a jewelry store down the corner. And she said, I don't have money for this. And I said, that's okay. We have another repair cafe scheduled next month. And she said, I can't wait. And I finally really looked at her and I said, what's really happening here? And she said, this chain holds this little silver vial. It was an, an engraved vial. And she said, it has my grandson's ashes. And she said, I've worn it ever since the day it was given to me. I, I, can't, I can't leave here without having it fixed. So I went flying out to the parking lot and asked Suzanne to come back and told the band members, I said, you need to give us 20 minutes. So during that 20 minutes, the woman told us this tragic, unfair, horrible story of how her grandson had died trying to help someone else. And when the repair was made, and Suzanne slid the, the little vial with the ashes on the chain and pinned it around the woman's neck, the woman threw her arms around Suzanne and said to her, you don't know what you've done today. One thing that we say is that when we take up repair, we're really prompting a conversation into the ethics and the practice of care of things, sure, but also with each other, our environment, and our communities. Repairing is caring. It's an inescapable fact. Right. I mean, and that fits very well with this quote from your book, the connections that people make as they attempt to repair things and mostly succeed is not besides the point. It is the point. And so like the connections and the care that's involved, it's, it's a really beautiful way of thinking about repair that 
you both have. Why do you find the repair community to be so strong and to provoke these kind of profound elements that we're talking about? Well, one thing I always like to say is that the act of repairing involves troubleshooting. And to many people, troubleshooting is an irresistible proposition. They just love to have an item in front of them, open it up and see what's going on. And the coaches, now that we've had to shut down because of the pandemic, the coaches miss each other. They miss what John says, it's the troubleshooting. They, they love to have like a geek out and get together. You look up and see four people with their heads around one object or somebody brought in one time a mechanical bear that wore a fedora and she wrote on the job description, the hat wires are broken. So it took somebody on the small electrics team to take apart the hat to fix the wire connection. And then it took somebody on the sewing team to patch up what he had done so that the bear could rock out and sing Christmas carols. And then the thing starts working and then everybody starts singing, rocking around the Christmas tree. I mean, everybody in the room, the, the coaches, the fixers, most people knew the song and then you've got toddlers up there dancing to it. It was ridiculous. That was a moment. Really, and really fun. So they, they enjoy, as John said, it's the problem solving. They enjoy the camaraderie. You know, and, and we use this phrase, repair coach, and we use that intentionally because that indicates the back and forth. You know, people bring an item. This is not a drop-off service. So, you know, this is just, it's a conversation. This is a human transaction. It's not monetary. It is generous. What we like to say is the level of gratification is very high on both sides of the table. There is a issue within repair cafes, and that is to what extent do people just bring their item and just want to get it fixed and, you know, are going to stand by and barely pay attention to what goes on. The other end of the spectrum is the person who sits down, gets their hands on mm-hmm. it. You know, they're passing tools back and forth. They're asking questions. They're really engaged and they really learn. And some of those people leave saying, hey, I could do it myself next time. Jumping off the idea of community, you pay special attention in the book to inclusive repair. Could you talk a little bit more about this and why you wanted to make sure that inclusion was included? Well, you know, this is something that we observed in our repair cafes here in the Hudson Valley, and that is adults who are somewhere on the autism spectrum coming to our repair cafes and wanting to fix things. And so getting to know them and what their needs are became, you know, an important goal. We want our repair cafes to be inclusive. And the affinity between the act of repairing and people with autism is really surprising to most people. Now, I have to say that I learned a great deal about this from Restart Radio. When you had an interview with Panda Mary, he opened up and gave me such an understanding of why that affinity would be so, you know, what accounts for it. So that was very helpful for me personally. And it also, one of our repair coaches specializes in the repair of stringed instruments. He teaches guitar also. One day he brought one of his students who was on the autism spectrum and the the two of them performed a concert for us during the regular Repair Cafe session. And one of the uh, responses I got from one of the organizers of a Repair Cafe in Washington State said that her son, who's I I think he was like nine or 10, she said he's on the autism spectrum and that he helps at the Repair Cafe by sitting there and paying attention. So repair means many things. What is the direction that you you want this movement to go in or even the direction you see it going in? We certainly believe that every community can and should 
have a repair initiative of some sort, whether it's a repair cafe or a fix-it clinic or a repair lab or hub. We learned recently about an initiative in Chicago called the Community Glue Workshop, and they are doing repair also. And, you know, really you have to ask, why wouldn't every community have one of these? Every community used to have repair shops, which are gone. So now what do they need? They need this. And that brings up something when I was starting the repair cafe in my town, a member of the Chamber of Commerce said, well, aren't you concerned that you're going to put local businesses out of business? And I said, well, from what I've experienced, it's, as I told you, it's mostly lamps. I said, where's the nearest lamp repair store? And even if there were, the kinds of things that come to a repair cafe are things that are meaningful, like the little girl who brought in the two lamps that had sat on her grandmother's nightstand, and she wanted it on her nightstand, but it didn't work. So Fix-It Bob sat there with the mom and the nine-year-old little girl and showed them how do you clean this and how do you use it? That's part of it too. Yes, as John says, we think that there should be some sort of repair initiative in every town because it's hard to find here. The other thing is we'd like to see more children involved in learning how to repair things. School programs, the Repair Cafe Foundation now has a book available for how to start a program in your school. Most kids here don't do that anymore. There aren't shop classes. There aren't sewing classes. Yes, there are things for adults like Mending Mondays, but not for children. Many of the repair cafes like mine and John's and New Pulse, we have the kids take it apart table. When somebody brings in the hairdryer described as when I turn it on, it makes a grinding noise and it smokes. And the small electric team looked at it and said, this one's finished. And she said, okay, where's the recycling bin? And then the man said, take it over there to the kids take it apart table where we had an adult with his two boys who show up every time. We've got little tiny screwdrivers and wrenches and he walks the kids through the process of taking it apart and telling them what they're looking at. We'd like to see that all across the country where you get the sense of, I can do this myself. It's not something I have to watch on TV. I can touch it. I don't have to buy a new one. I can reuse this because I can repair it. It is true. You talk to kids and it's clear that they really don't understand that things can be repaired because what they know of the world is that when it's broken, go get a new one. Right. I mean, and it's interesting, isn't it? Like I'm, I'm approaching 40 now and I wasn't taught, you know, like the basics on how to fix things when I was a kid. And I kind of feel like there's been a few generations skipped. And so it's really important to get that, that knowledge from the people who do know who were taught as kids, <laughs> you know, and communicate it to future generations. Mm-hmm. We're very clear that one of our purposes is to honor the people who have these skills and to give them an opportunity to share those skills and pass them on. This is preserving a very essential body of knowledge. So those are what you see as its aims. But what are your hopes for the future of the repair movement? The idea of repairability is critical. The fact that 80% of the environmental impact of things that we buy is determined at the design stage. Mm -hmm. This points to the critical importance of repairability of design. Products simply must be made to be repaired. And also the right to repair movement is taking off in our country. There isn't legislation that we would like yet 
but the whole notion of if I buy it, I ought to be able to repair it myself. I either need the instructions or the resources or have accessibility to the tools. That's an important part of this. The right to repair movement challenges the policies that many companies have instituted that are unfair and deceptive. Policies that make it difficult or expensive or even impossible for you to get your stuff repaired. In the U.S., the good news is that the Federal Trade Commission is solidly on our side and right to repair legislation is moving through the legislatures of 25 states. The basic principle is if you can't fix it, you don't own it. I would like to see, as I said, every town to have a place where people can either go and learn how to repair things or get things repaired. I grew up with family. All our stuff was repaired. Both of my parents did that. I wasn't paying attention when my mother was trying to teach me. And then when it was too late, I wanted to know how to do it. I'd like everybody to have that be part of what's considered a life skill. Just like you ought to know how to cook your own meal, you ought to know how to sew a button on your shirt or pump up your bike tire. It's a sense of being independent. It's a sense of being in charge of your own life, and it's what every adult ought to know how to do. But we need to provide the teachers until it's part of the system again. And the thing that's so heartening is you see how many families come, and the kids are absolutely fascinated with it. They don't know that it's work. It's exploration. It's play. If you could kind of both talk a little bit more about what the book is, what's in it, and why people should get hold of it. Well, as soon as you look at our book, you'll see that it's about much more than fixing things. It's, it's much bigger than that. And it connects us to our sense of individual and social well-being. And you might think that, oh, what a nice idea, fixing things for other people. But until you go to a repair cafe or something like it and see the generosity and the creativity and the sense of purpose in the room, you won't really know what this is about. And our book opens that door for you. And I would like to say that because I wrote the community repair chapter, it's full of stories that are inspiring, moving. I hope that they will inspire the readers to say, why don't we have one of this in our town? What do I need to do it? And then we've got a whole chapter on this is how you do it. This is where you start. But we also have tips and step-by-step instructions from some of our best fixperts, like how do you fix a vacuum cleaner? How do you diagnose what the problems are? Ditto for sewing. We do a lot of sewing machine repairs, and 90% of the time, they just need to be oiled and cleaned. How to diagnose what's wrong with a lamp. So some basic at-home repairs. The, the, the title of that chapter is Adventures in Repair. Yes, that you can do at home. So it's not just a book about how to do a repair cafe. It's a book about the whole philosophy behind repair. If you care about keeping things that you need or depend upon or love active in your life, here's basically, here's a handbook for how to do it with some great stories. By the time this episode airs, Repair Revolution, How Fixers Are Transforming Our Throwaway Culture, will be available from all good bookstores in both the UK and in the US. So considering everything we've talked about today, do you have a final thought to leave us with? I would like to leave you with a quote from one of my 13-year-old boys who's a volunteer. I asked him why he did this, and he needs community service. It's a requirement for school. And he wrote, it's nice to know that with the news saying so many sad and depressing stories, there's a place where there are people who are willing to help you, no matter who you are, for no other reason 
than to help you in the best way possible. It gives me hope. A 13-year-old boy. And the thought that I would leave you with is all over the world, people are pooling their resources, sharing information, and they're learning how to be more than just consumers. They're learning to be fixers, and they're starting to fix their world. Damn it. And right where they are, right where they live, right with people who are either their neighbors or soon to be. You know, my mother used to say, there's no such thing as a stranger. There's only people whose names you don't yet know. And you see that happening at a repair cafe right in front of you. Talking to Elizabeth and John, who are very far away from me on the other side of the world, at a time when life is pretty hard for me and for most people, I was struck by how warm they were, how talking to them, even through the obstacles created by distance and technology, felt like talking to two friends. There's clearly something unique to the repair cafes that Repair Revolution focuses on, and they do differ from our restart parties to some extent. But it's obvious that the focus on community is essential to the work that volunteer fixers are doing across the globe. Elizabeth and John hope that people will continue to share their skills, time and care with others. And a lot of the work that they do is about connecting people from different generations and being inclusive and letting everybody come in and get involved in whatever way they best can. This is such a positive message for all of our repair communities, especially at a time when in-person events are just not possible or advisable in many places. If you'd like to be a part of the repair revolution... Maybe you want to set up your own repair cafe. Maybe you'd like to start fixing more things. Or maybe you just want to share in other people's stories. Then do pick up a copy of Repair Revolution, How Fixers Are Transforming Our Throwaway Culture, from your local bookseller or your best independent online bookstore. And if you want to become part of the Restart community, then you can do that at restarters.net, where you can meet others and get involved. As Elizabeth mentioned, a stranger is only a friend that we have yet to meet. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the restartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.